Hello and welcome back to the Vincast for 2014. It's been uh, quite a while since our last episode. Um, obviously been on a, a bit of a hiatus over that uh, Christmas New Year period um, down here in uh, Australia. Obviously it's summer and so everyone's been um, enjoying their summer. They get a bit of a break and people go away and celebrating various things, obviously eating lots of food, drinking lots of wine. So um, I haven't actually been able to sit down with anyone um, over that period. So it's really good to be back. 2014, here we go. Uh, lots of exciting things coming up, um, which obviously I'll be covering in subsequent episodes. But um, you know, when our this is episode 15 of the Vincast. I think we've um, had uh, some, some really fun episodes, lots of interesting guests, um, really wanting people to sort of uh, interact a little bit more if possible. Um, you know, obviously we're on Twitter. Um, I'm on Twitter myself. Uh, you know, you can hit me up on the blog. Um, looking for some reviews on iTunes where you obviously you can download. Um, really wanting to get people um, interested in, in, in discussing some of the topics and some of the people that come up on the, sh- on the show. And so um, really, and also the other thing is um, I'd really love for people to sort of help promote. You know, we want to um, get more and more people interested in, in, in discussing wine and wine culture, wine people. So uh, anything you can do to help out the Vincast um, reach more of an audience that would be really really appreciated so um, I, I really do appreciate everyone who listens to it and enjoys it and who's already commented so far the feedback has been fantastic and uh, and let's um, really build the show if we can uh, so uh, thank you again guys for, for listening to the show and it's good to be back for our first episode of, of 2014 uh, I've actually invited someone who um, uh, is actually part of a really fantastic initiative we have here in Australia, which um, is the Australian First Families of Wine. Um, basically, um, as many of you would know, both in Australia and overseas, um, the Australian wine industry is uh, is quite large, uh, and uh, I think Australia is the fourth or fifth largest exporter of wine. Um, but most of the wine you would see does come from um, a number of, uh, a small number actually, of large producing companies um, who cover quite a range of of different regions, uh, particularly in the southeastern part of Australia, um, and they're generally they're corporate. Um, you know, they're, they're companies who, are in some cases, Australian-owned. In some cases, they're sort of um, internationally, but they're all publicly floated. But um, the Australian First Families it represents um, some of the uh, uh, more historic and also some of the uh, larger um, family-owned wine-producing companies. And so uh, the, my guest is actually um, one of the, the more recent generations, um, you know, the First Families, I believe, uh, have to represent at least two or three generations uh, of family-owned wineries. So uh, my guest is from um, Birch Family Wineries, which, uh, of course, is behind the uh, iconic uh, Western Australian wine brand of Howard Park. So, uh, Richard, uh, thank you very much for joining us today. Hi, James. Uh, thanks for having me on the podcast. Um, so, Richard... Uh, Something that I, I, I generally like to ask people is, uh, what was your first interaction with wine that made you sort of get it and kind of know that you wanted to sort of follow a career path in wine? Obviously, uh, with the family, it's um, a slightly different. It might have been yeah. a different kind of interaction. Yeah, it's hard to pinpoint one specific moment. I guess in a wine family, 
it's always around and you can't escape it. And I had a crack at escaping it and I didn't go very well. Oh, really? What, 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 what sort of did you uh, explore? Well, when I finished school, the old man was like, you got to be a winemaker. We need one of them in the family. And I was okay. like, oh, dad, that, that's pretty heavy. I don't really want to do that, to yeah. be honest. But I had a crack at it anyway and then didn't like it. What, what, I didn't want to be in the, in the farm or in the lab making wine so so did you did you go and study i did study yeah i studied at curtin university for a couple of years doing that's a, that's in perth in perth right yeah, okay. doing a viticulture and oenology degree uh-huh but i stopped after two years and yeah. didn't finish it i'm passionate should've. about it well just oh, with pressure or it felt like it was something i should have done uh-huh. and, I, and dad was just forcing me to do it just expectations expectation yeah, definitely okay. but um you know, I'm, I'm glad I had a crack at it, and then I pulled out of that, and then ended up working towards. Um, I think I went up, went to Europe for a, you know, twelve months and just yeah. partied for a little while. An Australian rite of passage. Exactly, and then ended up going back into marketing and advertising, and I really wanted to have a crack at something that I wanted to do that, uh-huh. that I was passionate about before, you know, caving into the pressures of joining the family business. Sure, I know it's um, it's a very common thing. Um, particularly in Australia in terms of families who own wineries where um, the children are encouraged to sort of go away and maybe work for a different wine company, whether that's yeah. sort of in the winemaking or viticulture side or even in sort of the business side. I, I mean, I, I even know of um, some producers over in Europe that sort of sent children, not sent, but, you know, their children went over and worked in the United States, for example, working for a wine merchant or something like that, you know, yeah. to get experience and then to come back to sort of, you know, like, so there's this sort of not like, um, there's no real kind of complacency. I'm not sure if that's right, the right no, word no, no. for it. I but. understand exactly what you're talking about. I'm just, it just reminded me of a point when we first started doing the AFFW or being involved in the AFFW program. I remember the Brown brothers, or I guess you call it the Brown girls because it's all really <laughs> girls in there. The Brown daughters. Uh, the Brown daughters. I remember Ross Brown was saying that they had, they had this rule where you couldn't join the family business unless you'd worked in other industries for, yeah. I think it was three, two or three years. In other industries? Even. Other industries. It could be anything, okay. you know, and I, I can sort of see that. And we've adopted a pretty similar policy at Birch Family Wines as well. And I think it's good because you go out and you, into the field, doesn't matter what you do, you learn new skills, you meet new people and you build new networks. And yeah. then you bring those networks and new skills back to the business with a fresh approach. Do you remember uh, how old you were when you sort of first became aware of wine, like first in, in, introduced to it? I'm going to say at a pretty young age of probably around 16, 17, even, even younger than that. Um, and, and, and aware that, you know, that was what your, that the family business was correct. in wine, that kind of thing. Well, d- dad always brought the business home with him to, to the dinner table. So I was always hearing the conversations nice <laughs> about how it's evolving and all the big business decisions we've made as a company at Birch Family Wines have been around the kitchen table and uh-huh. Which is, which is how I've sort of evolved through it. And I've always had a good understanding through that. And I was very fortunate to have a, a dad who loved talking about business and, and wine and, and decisions and especially being in Western Australia where it was quite a, a rapid evolution of wine. And, you know, it's only been growing grapes for around 50 years. So. so so tell us a bit about your dad. Uh, I mean, I was just reading that uh, he, he was a lover of surfing. And obviously, for those who aren't aware, um, the Margaret River in particular is one of the best places for surfing in Australia. And that's yep. kind of where you just had that interaction with, particularly with the Margaret River region and, and wine as well. Definitely. So how did, how, what, how did that how did, how did it all fit in? I, I guess I could describe him as... Uh, a bit of a rat bag. He probably wouldn't like me saying this, but it was from South Australia originally. See, unfortunately, for for those people who um, might not be as familiar with Australian slang, you're going to have to uh, 
Tell us what you mean by rat bag. Uh, a bit of a, oh, I was going to use a, another a, slang, uh, a scoundrel, a bit of a cheeky, okay. cheeky individual. A cheeky, okay, yeah, um, yeah. A little bit naughty. But um, yeah, he's always had a, a passion for wine. A, even A rebel? A rebel. <laughs> uh, definitely a bit of a rebel. I would say that. A terror. Um, yeah, so he started a passion for wine at a very young age in South Australia, hanging out with his old man, who was, uh, I think, a, a tradesman in, in South Australia. And then... The two of them moved to West Australia at quite a young age. I don't know which how they were when they moved yeah, over. Yeah. And then started a, uh, a plastic business over there or a packaging company over there. And on the side, there was always this passion brewing for wine. And eventually when, you know, Jeff's father, Leston, started farming the land in uh, in Margaret River, yeah, Jeff started to get a real more hands-on approach about how agriculture and especially growing vines can be turned into a business and okay. evolving from that. And then from a young age, you know, it started as a, a partnership with uh, the first winemaker of Howard Park Wines, Mr. John Wade, in Denmark. And then from that, it evolved quite quickly. And then I guess Jeff applied his knowledge of growing businesses and, and manufacturing to a wine business. Sure. And watched it evolve from there. So uh, at the time, there would have been in a small handful of wineries, certainly in Margaret River, probably even less down in, in Great Southern. Howard Park being one of the original wineries, I believe, down um, in, particularly in that, in that Denmark area. Um, and, and him getting involved with that, that, obviously over that period of time that he started to get more and more involved with it, you know, that it would have changed quite significantly. And, and, and particularly in, in terms of Margaret River being uh, for, for tourism, purposes is that exactly sort of, that, that's part of the the howard park that was definitely one of the moves well to actually come to margaret river so we started making wine in denmark first yep in 86 and then that kept going for a while and then i think in 2000 was the first sort of rural commitment to margaret river and then becoming a dual region producer yep. not just in margaret river but great southern and that was lucky like you said the tourism factor is very large in margaret river you've got a great lifestyle down there plenty of people coming in um, I think there's now 120 odd wineries in Margaret River these days, and yeah. it's grown a lot. And obviously, the lifestyle on the coastline is quite, quite sexy and attractive to a lot of people. So you got to go where the people are, and then by doing that, you've you've now bedded yourself in two regions. And obviously, the two regions are so different from a winemaking point of view or growing fruit point of view. You then it just naturally grows the business more because you find you're going Riesling from the Great Southern, and then Chardonnay and Cabernet from Margaret River. Okay. So, and so, um, and obviously, Western Australia is sort of, um, it, for, for a long time, has been kind of the frontier of wine in Australia, being so isolated from the vast majority of where the wine is being produced in Australia, um, and Great Southern particularly being so far away from Perth. Yep. Um, that must have presented some challenges, and, you know, there's not, not a lot of stuff else down there but um but yeah. for people who don't know the great southern um is a pretty large area right down the obviously the bottom of uh western australia and um predominantly it is much more of a cooler climate um, particularly than than margaret river even though you know we would say margaret river is still fairly cool climate with that maritime influence yep 
Great Southern being further south um, is, is a lot cooler, and that's why Riesling is such a, a, a key variety down there. That's right. Yeah, Margaret River is definitely a little bit warmer, and you can grow varieties that suit that warmer climate a lot more in Margaret River. Mm-hmm. But as it, people don't realise, uh, the Great Southern is a huge region, and it's about five hours southwest from Perth. It's a long drive to a quite an isolated remote area, which is a lot higher above altitude from Margaret River. Yeah. So you're getting those cool breezes coming in from the ocean, and it is quite close to the ocean there. That's the Southern Ocean? The Southern Ocean, yep. The coldest ocean? Is it? I don't know. It's pretty cold down there. Well, actually, I don't know, because the Pacific Ocean being big is also pretty cold, I think. I don't know. I just know it's cold when you go to the beach here in Victoria. Yeah, it's even colder down there. It's (laughs) shark-infested as well. Um, so, So in terms of, like, forgive my ignorance, but did your dad actually set up Howard Park or did he he got involved with it uh, no, after I think, it already existed? I think it started as a partnership. So uh, the winemaker, John Wade, I mentioned before, it was his, his brand. It was actually his father's name, Howard, Howard Wade, who right, okay. was the motivation from the Howard in the Howard Park. Uh-huh. But um, And then Jeffrey came on as a partner from that and then, you know, the rest is history. He kind of just kept evolving and kept growing it. Uh, I don't particularly know which point John Wade left the business. I can't remember, but he was a, a big part of that business and sure. set up the foundations for for Howard Park in Breezley and Cabernet. And he was actually an incredible winemaker as well. I believe he's still living in the region down there making chocolates oh, really? and things oh, like that, yeah. uh, like infused with wine and things mm-hmm. like that. But, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a little interesting story. And it just started as a partnership and it's evolved from that. And then, yeah, it, it's it, for me as a as a, you know, second or third generation depending on how you look at it um it's been exciting to see a small brand like that making 200 cases of Riesling and Cabernet to really being into two regions and having uh, such a big credibility around the world and it's mm-hmm. uh, in such a short period of time less mm-hmm. than 30 years so yeah it's it's been incredible to see that evolve and be a part of the decision making process during That's- the whole way and so when you sort of started to be aware more, you understood more about the business, was it still just Howard Park or had they already started sort of evolving into um, sort of sub or uh, separate brands? Well, I think we d- we did shoot off another brand during that process as well. I think it was oh, I'm terrible of my history here. Could it be around the 93 or 92 around then when we created Madfish Wines, yep. which is a label a takeoff of a label, a, a bay in down in Denmark called Madfish Bay, uh-huh. but two different, two very different tiered wines enabled you to get a an insight to sort of I don't want to use the word premium wine, but high end wine, and then sort of more entry level wine, and seeing the differences between the two, and then you look at a business from that point of view and see how they evolve and into different markets, and then you're looking at markets and things like that. So, and and the decision to sort of establish i mean i guess howard park in two regions rather than sort of um, keeping howard park as the the great southern sort of winery and establishing a new winery do you do you know uh kind of why they decided to sort of do howard park across multiple regions i think it's tying back into having a a key base and and a cellar door in margaret river and it wasn't like we wanted to be part of two that just naturally evolved sure and being you're in that region you could have fruit from that region so initially it was just a decision to have a, a different site where we could show off the wines from the great southern but then 
the farmland around that area was so good for, for Cabernet and Chardonnay and that's when Jeff's father Leston started farming. So I guess it naturally evolved being part of two and we've had little roots in both and then they both progressed at different levels and tempos as the years have gone on and as at the end of it you were quite heavily embedded in both regions now which I think is a great thing because you're part of, you know, they're so different climatically yep. and then it expands the amount of wines you can show people and and we like doing that. We know we don't want to be limited to just a few, few products. You know, it's great to show people all different styles of wine. And mm-hmm. we're definitely big ambassadors for West Australian wine, which is um, an up-and-coming thing. And it's uh, we, be, we believe in the region and we, we like what we're doing over there. And it's exciting for the future. WA, um, obviously, for a number of reasons, logistically, um, uh, his, you know, the fact that generally it's still pretty uh, young in terms of wine producing um, there isn't really a, a, a lot of wine produced. There's, there's a reasonable amount, but um, but there aren't any sort of massive wineries down there. Is no. sort of the, the wine industry, the community there, are they all fairly close and collaborative? Very close and collaborative uh, in both regions. I think there's something like nine wine regions in Western Australia. Okay. Argument, arguably, the, the two largest ones would be Great Southern and Margaret River. Yeah. And they've each got their own little subcommittees, and the communities are very small and they do know each other because the vineyards are right next door to each other. You're all playing in the same field. You're going to the same events a lot of the time. So naturally the, the communities are small and tight, but you're definitely right, James. The at West Australia, I, I think I pulled a few stats earlier. I think it only produces 4% of Australia's total wine production. Sure. But 20, 25% of that is over 20 20 odd dollars so it is so we are talking more in that premium kind of category it's, it's the not the word i would like to use often but it definitely is that's know, a premium that's a, wine that's a term that gets bandied around a lot it is it is we try not to use it oh uh, well yeah obviously that's going back to my my wine business studies days when they <laughs> when they tried to put it into categories and yep. segments and blah 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 yep um and at the same time is there is there a real sense of sort of isolation and kind of like we're on the edge of the world here. And, <laughs> Without a doubt. Yeah. Without a doubt. We're, we're out here sort of fighting, you we're know. We're fighting the go, West Australian. Go West, my son kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. It actually is. And it's amazing. I've been living in Melbourne for about a year. Okay. And I ask a lot of people, have you ever been to Western Australia? Like, no, it's no. too far. I don't yeah. want to go there. It's like, oh, I, really? I don't do well with jet lag, that kind it's, of thing. It's not that bad. But <laughs> West, or you ask any West Australian there and they're going to say, they definitely feel like they're isolated. I think it is the most isolated city in the world. Someone told me that. Perth? Yeah, Perth. Okay. But, uh, As in, it, it's... It's from uh, distance it's, from one city to another. Right, okay. There is, is the largest from anywhere in the world, which sure. is quite a staggering little stat. I'm not sure if it's right or not, but... Well, I guess it depends what, what you determine as a city. Like, that's true. Or, like a minimum population, I guess. But Yeah, um, yeah you, you are probably right, you know, but... Um, and obviously, more recently, that side of Australia has been experiencing quite a boom um yep. financially in terms of particularly in terms of the sort of the mining industry yep. uh, and so there's been a bit of money coming in have has there been sort of quite an investment into agriculture and the wine industry in general definitely i think i think you hit the nail on the head there the the mining boom in western australia has definitely been one of the factors driving uh the growth of west australian wine there's a lot of people with a lot of money uh-huh. with, looking for hobbies and things to do and, you know, little projects to 
you know, well, there's even pursue. Been, there's always, uh, recently I think there's been quite a bit of, no, I mean, not just in WA, but in a wine industry in Australia in general, yeah. there's been a bit of international investment as well. Definitely, yep. Um, particularly stuff coming out of Asia, which is really interesting mm. um, and, and sort of setting up a, a winery to be, you know, a, a, a super kind of, ultra premium sort of producing yep. you know maybe almost maybe in that sort of bordeaux sort of chateau model mm. and just sort of saying you know we're just going to make you know the best wine we can and just here's all the money you need kind of thing yeah um it's it is nice that that's fantastic don't get me wrong obviously it's it's good supports you know jobs and stuff like that but um it's kind of nice to sort of look at a story like um howard park and birch family and to sort of see how you know it could grow from something quite small organically um yep. and to sort of sort of early on fight and and to establish and to educate i guess particularly on uh regions that i mean even with even within australia um a lot of people wouldn't have even heard of great southern mm. let alone uh, you know overseas so i'm sure that must have been pretty hard so wh when did you actually get involved in that sort of marketing and, and business side, in a full, in a full time role at Birch Family Wines, so I started in two thousand and twelve. Really? Okay, so that's yep. been quite recent. It's been recent, but um, before that, I've been very involved in a lot of events and sure. marketing things. Sure, just not in a full time capacity. Okay, um, and you have uh, siblings that are involved as well. I do. I'm the youngest of the family. Uh -huh. um, so I'm 20, 27, yep. and I've got a... Oh, my God, this is really bad. I don't actually know my brother's and sister's age. That's okay. Um, just, just, just tell me the order, and that, that'll be fine. So there's uh, Dave, <laughs> who's older than me, my brother. He works in sales and marketing. He's probably more of a online-type role. Right. And my sister... Who, and, is, and so where, is he based in... Like, he's based in Perth. In Perth, okay. Yep. In the office in Fremantle there. And then my sister works in operations in Margaret River. Sure. Okay, um, and, and, and they've been involved a little bit longer? Yeah, I think my sister's about nine years, and my brother's probably around seven or so, around that. Did they, did you, I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure if you can speak for them, but did they sort of have that similar feeling of kind of the expectation of becoming part of the family business? And, and particularly, I guess, even when you were sort of maybe in your teens, you might have seen the business expanding and sort of, and, and sort of, the I guess that might have there might have been an expectation expectation there that oh look you know we need everyone involved because the, you know the business is growing so uh, that the, did you know if they kind of had experienced those kind of uh, feelings as well I would say so like I I know like speaking for Nat and Dave like Nat had a crack at being a teacher in Margaret River for a few years okay but uh, she quickly realised that wasn't for her and sure. it just wasn't really working and she made a pretty quick decision to just jump into the business and she's enjoyed it ever since obviously it's a pretty sharp learning curve down there and baptism of fire but she's been enjoying it but she definitely had a crack at doing something else beforehand but generally wine is is in the blood it is it really is especially in a wine family and this, this i'm sure a lot of the families in australia's first families of wine would feel exactly the same sure from the moment you're you're born you know you've you've got a little bit of bit of wine in the blood anyway it's just it's built in and you always i guess that's what happened with uh birch family wines where we only rebranded the company sort of birch family wines a couple of years ago okay and before that it had been just howard park wines so what was the reasoning behind that well i guess the reasoning was we couldn't call the company howard park wines anymore because we had other brands right. that were being made under that same name so we okay. had madfish which is 
a very popular brand, been around for 21 years in Australia and around the rest of the world. Yep. And then more recently, uh, Marshall and Birch, which is a collaboration between Jeff Birch, dad, and uh, Pascal Marchand of Burgundy. Okay, so tell me a little bit about that. How how did you actually first come into contact with Pascal? How did it start happening? I guess that started definitely in Burgundy in a little house in Montpellier um, that Dad owned with a number of other people from Australia. And he's been going there for about 15, 20 years. And that just next door was Pascal Marchand, a winemaker from Burgundy. I think he's born in Canada originally, but he's been making wine in Burgundy for a long time. Okay. And I think probably Quebec. Yeah, Quebec, which is, which is yeah. virtually still France. Yep. <laughs> but um, yeah, they just formed a friendship straight away, and eventually got got to a point where their friendship evolved to you make wine in Australia, you make wine in France. Let's do something together. Okay. And then Jeff flew Pascal out to to the Great Southern in Western Australia, and said, "All right, let's make a wine. Let's make a French style wine using Australian fruit." Off you go. Here's a blank check. Go out there and plant it however you want wherever you like, and uh, do it your certain style. Okay, so I know it's easy to say French-style wine, but what does that mean? French-style, I guess. So it's probably a little bit different from, I guess, a West Australian or, or a lot of Australian viticulture in that, you know, the canopy management's very different. Okay. Uh, the soils are a lot different. Uh, right. For Marchand and Birch wines, they're all biodynamically grown, so you're introducing quite odd practices like planting cow horns of dung in them throughout the row. Uh, vineyard practices and harvesting are based on the lunar calendar. Yep. Um, and you, you're more or less letting the wines do evolve at a natural rate and not really challenging them and minimal pesticides and herbicides and things like that. Um, so how does that differ to the, the, the way that the wines would normally be made by, um, by Birch family wines? Well, I guess with, with Howard Park, um, you know, we would do a lot of harvesting by machine. We would certainly use herbicides and pesticides more so in 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 the early years. We would have done that, um, and I guess would have been more modern. Um, more, I don't know what the right term to use. It's uh, more traditional, more modern ways of viticulture and winemaking, using things that people perceive to be as bad these days, like sulphur and more chemicals. But well, oh. copper sulphate is is allowed in um, in biodynamics. It is. Yep. It's a, it's an, it's classified as a natural product. Yep. I think you, you probably would be doing pretty well if you didn't have to use it. Mm. Um, but um, I, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just interested to sort of know the reasoning behind saying come here and make a French. Yeah, yeah. French I, I probably didn't wine. explain that. I clear guess, enough. I, I guess the reason being that, um, to a certain extent, I guess the, the sort of the claim um, and the success of the wines is that they're being made in, for lack of a better term. Uh, in an Australian way, or at least in a in a Great Southern way, hmm. um, I'm just interested to know what what the rationale behind sort of saying, look, come down and make a wine different. Well, it, Pascal's been making wines in Burgundy for God knows how many years, and we basically said to him, come down and plant and grow fruit how you would do it, as if you were in France. But the, but the thing is though that the Burgundy and and Denmark or wherever he plants it down in the Great Southern yep. are not the same place. No, we're talking about different things. So totally different. What did did he actually come in and and do it exactly the same way he would do it in Burgundy, or did he kind of get a feel for the place and sort of go, okay, I think uh, using my experience and knowledge of Burgundy, I think this would be the right thing to do in this place. That's correct. Right. Okay. Yep. 
Uh, and in terms of certainly the, the winemaking, I guess that would have been a little bit different mm-hmm. um, in the way that the, the fruit was being handled and, and possibly a little bit more labor intensive, a little bit more hands-on. Definitely more um, labor intensive. And, and which really can only be done in, in fairly small batch sort of winemaking, um, which you know, obviously this does contribute a little bit in terms of the cost of the wine. But that's So that's why generally the, the better quality wines are more expensive because they do cost more to produce. And that's just a question about of the, 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 the fruit is more expensive to grow. It's also, you know, there is a little bit more work done in the vineyard and in the winery that, that, that does add a little bit more cost. But, you know, you are getting the benefit of smaller, um, much, much, much better controlled, I guess, yep. sort of wines. Yep. Um, and, and so then, and then the relationship with Burgundy, then it evolved from the few vintages of, I guess you caught the Australian collection of Marchand and Birch. Sure. Uh, where the, the first vintage of that wine, and it was a few years after, after they had been established, ready to go for giving off some fruit, the, the wine got, I think it got 96 or 97 points, the Chardonnay we, we grew, which was a great indication of quality. We thought we're onto something here. Uh, can you tell me who they who go who gave them those points? I think it was uh, James Halliday. Okay. Yep. So Australia's foremost authority on on wine quality. Yep. He's uh, he's pretty serious in Australia. Sure. Um, so that was a really great sign that we were onto something and that it it worked and we've just got to keep growing it and encouraging it and putting more energy into it. And then I guess in Burgundy, Pascal did the same sort of project over there where. He invited Jeff to Burgundy and walked around. There are a number of vineyards in Burgundy, uh, looking at all the vines, looking at all the fruit. And given his relationship and his network in Burgundy, we were able to get access to some some pretty good fruit over there. So when you say access? Um, well, we were able to buy some fruit from okay. some, some very old vineyards over yep. there. And yep. that became the backbone of various different vineyards, mainly for large sort of tiered Pinots and Chardonnays. To create the French collection of Marchand and Birch. Okay, so so as as Marchand and Birch um, as a sort of a, a sub brand, I don't like using the term brand, but um, that now includes um, Chardonnay, yep. just Chardonnay, or Pinot Noir from Great Southern in Australia. Yeah. So we've got a Great Southern Pinot from Mount Parker. Okay. A Chardonnay from the Prongrups. Yep. Uh, there's also Shiraz as well, which is from Franklin River, but also a little bit of the fruits from also Margaret River. And they're the, the three main wines there. Okay. Occasionally we grow another Pinot from a, re- a site called Gibraltar Rock, which is very close to Prongrups. Yeah. But we only do that when the fruit is really good. So Pascal sort of consults in terms of the, the winemaking and, and stylistically, but there is actually, there's a winemaker um, as part of the, the kind of overseas um, all the other kind of production of um, of Howard Park, uh, and her name escapes me. Janice McDonald. Janice, um, who has apparently you know really done fantastic um, in in lifting the profile, particularly of Riesling. Um, and she, I think she's been championing sort of the off dry styles as well. She has. Yeah. She has taken our wines, in particular our whites, uh, for me that which is what I've noticed to a whole new level. They've become a lot more floral and flat, uh, and a lot more attractive as well. 
Um, for our reds, she's made them a lot more approachable, juicy, and, and luscious from the get-go, mm-hmm. which were previously quite tight in the steer wines. Um, she has some excellent knowledge in making Chardonnay, which she attained from uh, creating Stella Bella wines, which is also from Market River. Mm-hmm. But she's b- brought some excellent skills to winemaking, which is we're very lucky to have her, and, and it's flowed on into Mashana Birch as well. So sure. when Pascal isn't in town, Janice is definitely in the vineyards, in the winemaking, looking over the vines. And yep. So it's very collaborative then. Correct, yeah. Fantastic. Um, tell me how you got involved with uh, Australia's First Families. Well, Australia's First Families of Wine was an initiative that started, I think, three, just over three years ago. Uh-huh. Um, and I think the idea stemmed from... Uh, Halstead Perbrick from Tabilk Wines, actually. And it was there was a similar model running in New Zealand called New Zealand's First Families of Wines. And okay. it all came about from a need to really do something to raise the profile of Australian wine around the world because, yeah. you know, you've got these big brands out there that are being distributed to international markets. And we didn't necessarily, or collectively, a lot of people in Australia didn't believe that they collectively represented what Australian wine is, you know, I don't want to name any brands, but there are some brands that weren't as nice over there, quite cheap and cheerful, not giving Australia a good, good reputation. Well, I, I I would argue that they are largely responsible. I mean, they might not have, this might not be when they were corporate, but they were responsible for putting Australia on the map to a large extent. Definitely. Um, but the, the, the wine industry, the global wine industry has changed quite significantly. And there are now, um, some really exceptional, um, you know, not very expensive wines coming out of um, South America and yep. South Africa and, you know, even California, that kind of thing, which um, even though they represent good quality, they're not really from anywhere. They don't really taste of anything apart from maybe the variety. Yeah. Uh, and that is now what sort of I agree that the vast majority of wine, that particularly is being exported, um, is representing. And, and, and I think that's, uh, sorry, as you were saying, with the first families, that's, that's why they're trying to champion um, not necessarily just, you know, this is Australian wine, but th- these are Australian wines from somewhere. Yes, give it a sense of place. Yeah. And give also Australian wine a bit of personality as well. And connecting to people. It's all about connecting to people. And you get these absolute characters in all the first families sure. hitting the market and they're pretty eccentric creatures entering the market. And it it, it adds a lot of fun to Australian wine as well. Australian wine, the whole wine industry can be pretty serious at times. You know, and I don't think wine should be taken that seriously. And although you can go that serious angle, it's also about having a lot of fun and providing some personality to all the brands and a sense of place. And obviously a big part of Australian's first family wines is a family and how that evolves. Mm-hmm. And sort of what sort of initiatives um, have you guys been involved with in terms of the first families, um, particularly uh, both in Australia and overseas? Yep. So in Australia, we... Uh, do this big tasting called Unlocked, which we started in Sydney. And I think last year we rolled that out into Brisbane, which is a huge tasting where both the trade and consumers, where we showcase all the top wines and all the up and coming wines for each of the families. Mm-hmm. And that's, they're presented by the current generation who are running the show and also a group which we call the Next Gen, which is the next of kin of the, each of those families. That's been a useful little vehicle to roll out in each city. Domestically, we also do a couple of events just for the next gen where we take a very relaxed approach to winemaking and, and presenting wines and showing wines to people where it's just the next, next of all the next geners, you know, at a venue, 
whole bunch of consumers, much casual approach to wine and not so serious, which is quite fun. Is there quite a, 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 um, a culture of kind of experimentation and trying new things Definitely. going on within the whole group? Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting. All the, the current, I'm referring to them as the current generation, which is people that are running the CEOs and the managers of yeah. the wineries. Yeah. They have a certain style. It's usually very traditional and old school. Mm. And it's interesting to see how that infuses with the next it's amazing, generation. It's amazing that we're saying sort of, you know, 80s and 90s is traditional and old school. <laughs> it's terrible. So it kind of shows you how fast the Australian wine industry and wine tastes in general have evolved. Yes, correct. Um, and so what sort of experimentation are you guys doing over in the West? In the West, um, probably some experimentation we're doing over there would be through sparkling. Okay. Um, which is something quite new coming out of Western Australia. Sure. Uh, We've found the great southern climate is excellent for growing Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, uh-huh. which has become the basis of our method traditional champagne or sparklings, which we've been creating yeah. for a while now. Um, so that's something quite new. Uh, Riesling has always been a big thing, that, a, a big part of great southern, but I guess compared to the rest of Australia, we've still got a long way to go in teaching people that we can make excellent Riesling down there. Yeah, but at the same time, the Riesling market is not exactly kind of kicking any goals. I, I would agree that sparkling wine consumption continues to grow uh, in Australia. Obviously, now Australia, I think, is seventh largest champagne market mm. um, in the world, which is amazing considering our population. Um, but Riesling, I, I, I'm, I'm interested because there, I, don't, I don't disagree that there is some exceptional quality in terms of Riesling, but just people, even, even with initiatives like Summer of Riesling, there sort of doesn't seem to be enough kind of energy around Riesling as a, as a variety. I could be wrong. Hmm. It, it could, I, 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 could, I could be very wrong. Um, oh, it's, it's that variety that, you know, we often joke about it in the industry that it's the the variety that everyone in the industry drinks. Exactly. But I don't know why that's the case because it's affordable more so than things like Chardonnay, which can be a little bit more expensive for a complex wine. It's it's clean and easy to drink and it can go many different ways and you can put it away in the cellar for a while. You can drink it straight away. For me, it has a lot of versatility and a lot of flexibility for, for consumers and mm-hmm. uh, that's, that's quite attractive, I think. But do you see the sort of um, the, the experimentation and trialling that the that Janice is doing, for example, in sort of really putting out the, the message about sort of off-dry styles and, and maybe even sweeter styles, um, it really a valuable tool to sort of like lift the profile of Riesling? Hmm. I think the more time you bang the drum about it, that's, that's the way you're going to get your message across. Okay. But I guess, you know, in the end of the day for us, Riesling is one of a few varieties we grow, so you can only bang it so hard and for so long. Yeah, exactly. But, um, um, have you sort of seen there been much of a downturn in terms of consumption of Cabernet, for example? Maybe a little bit. I guess in terms of in Western Australia, Cabernet has always been probably one of the top varieties grown there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, every producer's got a Cabernet in Margaret River. Mm-hmm. Um, and even West, like our, for us, Howard Park, our top Cabernet is actually from the Great Southern. A lot of people don't realise but um, and, and then Chardonnay is obviously very popular, but yeah, Cabernet, it, it comes in waves, but it'll always have a home, I think. And um, given the quality of Cabernet coming out there and it's only getting better as the vines get older, I, I think it will be pretty steady. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of um, export markets, roughly how much do you export of the production? 
I am terrible at answering these questions. I don't have a very clear idea, but we export to around 25, 30 different countries, mm-hmm. some obviously very small quantities. Um, in what are the, parts what are of the Asia. big markets? The big markets would definitely be uh, Asia, China. Can't be ignored. It's a big, ugly, unchained bulldog at the moment. you just got to keep, a, keep an eye on it and see what it's doing. Um, the US is almost like a clean slate, how it's been approached over there. Mm-hmm. People are now starting to look at Australian wine a lot more over in the US. The UK has always been a big market. It's obviously been through its challenges in the last 10 years, but it's still slowly starting to come around, which is exciting. Um, they're probably the, the top three that I'd, I'd think of off the top of my head. And of those, um, where do you sort of see the, the most potential in terms of educating uh, consumers about um, better quality, mm. Australian wines, wine, you know, different wine regions from Australia, that kind of thing? Yep. I think probably the most receptive audience in each of those markets would be Asia. They have a pretty keen thirst for knowledge. Sure. And more so Australian wine. They're, they're certainly looking at it and not only buying large vineyards all around Australia, but trying all sorts of wine and, and are very interested in what we are doing here in Australia. Sure. Like, like you touched on before, Australian viticulture and winemaking is moving at a very fast pace. Yeah. And a lot of producers are quite reactive to trends in the market. I, I actually, um, I, I, I think that there's um, going to be more and more um, influence in Asia in terms of Australian wine consumption trends mm. and, and tastes um, here. They're, they're going to, I, I actually think they're going to look less to, um, you know, the North America and Europe in terms of um, indications about trends and, 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 and tastes and they're going to look more and more to Australia. And so particularly in terms of um, our food and wine culture that we oh. We, we tend to have um, obviously predominantly in the, in the larger capital cities um, and that's going to be a, a big influence in Asia and so I think in, in that respect it's, it's important to sort of get into the Asian markets with sort of those, those um, gatekeepers I guess as influential yep. um, sommeliers and, 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 and wine communicators and educators and sort of really um, be championing this, this sort of stuff that, that we are doing here in Australia. Yep. Well, that's what we did with Australia's first families of wine. I think late last year, around September, all the first families went to Asia, uh, sorry, China, and did a full program in Shanghai, Beijing, and Hong Kong. Wow, okay. Uh, which is a huge exercise. And So uh, what sort of program what, what did that involve? Well, it's a similar program that we have rolled out in the UK before, we've done Canada and Ireland uh, in the early years. Each, each, each year, Australia's First Families Wine will pick a country and focus on that country to champion Australian wine within that country through sommelier programs, uh, trade tastings, cons- so consumer mean, events. What you Let's go back. Sorry. Sommelier programs, what, what does that involve? Get a whole bunch of sommeliers into a room and taste some wines with them and, and teach them about the wines. So in a structured tasting? Correct. A structured tasting. Okay. Um, and sorry, what, then in trade? So trade tastings, were, so I guess you're looking at your, your food and beverage managers of hotels and bars and restaurants and places like that. Yep. Much the same as the sommelier tasting, doing a structured tasting with them and giving them bite-sized chunks of information which they can digest and then use at their particular venues that they're associated with. Uh, teaching them little things about terroir of Australia as well and, and, and differences in the region, that's very important. Obviously, in or in first Australia's first families of wine, where in all the a lot of the key regions of Australia, so that's a big part of these tastings, and they go on for a long time. So it's important to 
uh, I guess, uh, break down that information to, to dissectable little bites of uh, information. And, and, and you're finding that the, the feedback is generally positive? Are people sort of able to understand and kind of process that information? Yes. Because um, I, I think, in my humble opinion, one of the problems that um, some wine producing countries have had in, in the past in communicating with Asia is that there's a, a certain a, a level of assumed knowledge, which mm. historically has always been the case, but uh, in Asia they have no experience at all and so there's no there's no reference point and so um it's not just a question of 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 a language barrier but it's also a cultural barrier and hugely and a frame of reference Uh, obviously part of the reason being that a lot of people historically or maybe until recently in asia hadn't really left the the continent let alone or the, the country, let alone the continent. So to try and kind of explain what Australia is, for example, is and sort of see this massive country and then to sort of try and break it down into small parts and, and introduce them to concepts and, you know, different soil types and that kind of thing. Yep. Is that something that they're able to digest? Or is that, is, that, is that really just going to take time and time and time? I think it's, it's, it's definitely something that has to evolve over time and you've got to be... You know, not just do one big show and then that's it for that market, then they get it. It's got to be something that's constantly being done over a period of time. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, you know, basic things like really good maps as well, you know, it's, it's such a simple tool and just making it very clear that this variety's grown here and this variety's grown here. And why? Um, and why? And giving them the reasons why and, and bite size information that they can dissect. So I think over a period of time, it, it will evolve as long as we keep committing resources to the market and growing that market because sure. it is worthwhile doing. But uh, it's definitely not a one-shot type thing and no. nail it on the head in one, one go. But generally, there, isn't, there aren't any issues in terms of, yes, we, we know Australia and we know Australia makes mm. wine. It's, it's really just sort of about saying, okay, we make great wine and, mm. we, and we have lots of different places and we can make some wines that maybe you didn't realise we could make, particularly in terms of cool climate wines. Yep. Obviously, the, the, the general association of Australia is with hot beaches or the outback, and so it's a like cool climate. Psh, not in Australia, mate. And that's I think that's why in the past um, it's been easy to promote cool climate New Zealand wines because mm. it's all cool climate. Yeah, exactly. They've got these big mountains you see in the Lord of the Rings movies, and goes, oh yeah, yeah, we get that cool climate. But Australia, no, that's Uluru. Mm. You know, you know that's that's Queensland. They're, they're quite a sophisticated market in Asia, though. They they do their homework, and I remember meeting a, a lady at one of a Wine Australia's initiatives called Saver. Um, I met a lady who was doing uh, one of the largest wine schools in the world, and it's based in Shanghai. Mm-hmm. And so their training programs are huge, and and they are, they too are putting a lot of energy and resources into learning about not just Australian markets but world wine markets. And so I guess the two combined are putting a lot of energy and resources into training each other and, and learning about what works well in each region. Mm. But they're coming along a lot faster than a lot of, a lot of people realise and they're, they're pretty sharp. They know what they're doing. Well, that's good. I mean, particularly, I, think, I really do think that the Australian First Families of Wine is a fantastic initiative and obviously something that yeah, everyone should um, get involved with. I'm sure they've got lots of fun activities coming up. Uh, both in Australia and overseas this year, um, but uh, obviously it must be fun to go out on the road with uh, with those guys. It's so much fun. We have a great time. 
Cool. All righty. Well, um, thank you very much for joining me today, Richard. Um, what's the best way that people can connect with uh, with Birch Family Wines and, and Howard Park and Marshall and & Birch and all of the different brands? Yeah, probably the first point of contact would be our website, which is birchfamilywines.com.au. But we're also pretty active on Twitter. We've got a Twitter profile called Birch Wines, as well as Howard Park Wines, another handle. Uh-huh. And a third one we have is Madfish Wines. And if you neither of those suit you, we can always do Facebook as well. We've got a Facebook group called A Glass of Wine Solves Everything. Yep. Which we've gotten into a lot of trouble naming it that, but it's a, it's a great little page and we populate of all sorts of uh, interesting information, not always about wine as well, which is important. So oh, that's good. drop us a line sometime. Um, and people can find the wines out in the market? They can. The wines are available in all key areas of Australia. Um, it's not too hard to find them, which is good. Fantastic. And, uh, and, and covering quite a few price points, which is always fantastic. Exactly. You've got to cover a few price points and make the wines accessible for all people. Fantastic. Well, guys, um, particularly uh, whilst we're still in summer down here in the Southern Hemisphere, jump on top of some of their Rieslings. They are some of the best you can get in Australia. But uh, thank you again for joining us today. Thanks very much, James. As always, guys, um, please do uh, follow me on Twitter at Intrepid Wino, or you can follow the podcast at The Vincast. Um, come and visit the, uh, the blog where you can uh, read some of my past uh, uh, adventures and also um, get access to all of the episodes we've done so far at intrepidwino.com. Um, and uh, please do subscribe on iTunes. You can download the episodes as they go up. And uh, if you can find the time, please do rate and comment. That would be fantastic. But uh, until next time, bye.